hopefully several voices this morning that have already said good morning to you, and I want to welcome you to Bethel downtown. We really are glad that you're here. My name is Eric Barton, and for those of you who actually know me, you will notice that I have a whole lot more face on display than I typically do. It's a brand new sermon series, it's a brand new beard, and so off we go. Now, we're really excited that you are here because we are starting a brand new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be in the Gospel of Mark, Lord willing, this entire spring 22 semester. Now, if you're new to Bethel, let me touch on this just a moment, explain why we do what we do. We do what's called expository teaching. We walk straight through an entire book of the Bible because we want for the point of each passage to be the point of our preaching. We want the point of every text to be the point of our teaching. We want the point of every scripture to be the point of our speaking. Because we really do believe that it is the word of God that transforms people, that takes people from being merely wretched to redeemed. We do this because we really believe this is how God communicates to people, even in East Texas in the 21st century. This is how God conveys his truth, his compassion to people. And yet, even still, we'll hear the protests again and again. Why don't you just help people? Why don't you just give us a top 10 list of how to handle stress? Why don't you give us top five things to do in our marriage? Why don't you tell us how to, how to deal with our kids? Why don't you tell us, just give us some help? And I want to say... What you think you need is probably not what God thinks you need. We think we have all these things that we need most, and I just need a little help, I need a little boost. But no, God's going to tell us again and again and again what we need most is Jesus. And so that actually leads us to our big idea, sort of the refrain, the focal point, the big notion of our morning together as we start off the Gospel of Mark. Our big idea goes like this. We need Jesus. Now, I know. I get it. There's a lot going on in our world. I feel like over the last 24 months, the flags have been at half-mast more time than in my entire lifetime. A lot of angst, a lot of frustration, fear, uncertainty, doubt, animosity, discouragement that even leads to depression. I know that. And I don't want to diminish or minimize the severity and the reality of any of that stuff. But we want to keep doing what the church has been doing for 2,000 years and proclaim that all of those problems out there are really and truly merely the overflow and the byproduct of all the problems that we've got in here. The Bible never tries to come along and solve the world's ills. It tries to transform human hearts. And that's the gospel. That's the good news that Christ has come to proclaim and to actually announce to us. We need Jesus. Now, let me put a, a fine point on this as we begin our sermon series in the gospel of Mark. The more we examine the object of our faith the more our faith grows. I want to say that again. The more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. In other words, church is not about coming together to try to become better people, to just try harder, to be nicer, to sin less. It's not about that at all. Church is a place where we come together to look accurately and adoringly at the one who makes our lives hopeful and joy-filled. Now, that's a mission that I can get behind, and I hope that you can too. But maybe you've been brought up in a different setting with church. And maybe you've been told something like, you just need to have more faith. You just need to grow your faith. You just need to, to you just got to believe. And it starts to sound like a Disney movie. You just got to believe. Well, believe what? what? What am I supposed to believe? No matter how hard I flap my arms and how hard I tell myself that I believe I can fly, I cannot fly. Can't do it. No matter how hard I try to believe. Instead, we want to look at the object of our faith. Here's, here's a truth about human beings. 
We believe things because at the end of the day, we trust that they work. And so what that means, practically speaking, is you and I don't actually have all that much control over what we believe. We live our lives day to day, decision by decision, moment by moment, as a demonstration, as a proclamation of what we actually believe. We live in a certain way because just instinctively, we believe certain things work. That's what it means to have faith. We live as though it was true. We read and we study and meditate on these gospel accounts like we're going to study in the gospel of Mark so that the Holy Spirit will continue to encourage and inflame and kindle our affection for the object of our faith, that's Jesus. We need Jesus. Now, we are starting in this new sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, and you've heard me say this hopefully many times. I want to say it again. There is no meaning apart from context. Now, I know that idea is sort of eroding and degrading in the 21st century, but it's a fact There is no meaning apart from context. And God in his wisdom chose to reveal the New Testament into a Western world with the Greek language that relies exclusively on things like syntax and grammar and context. God, the greatest communicator in the cosmos, chose to reveal his truth with a context. And so it helps us to actually look into this context of the gospel. Now, you might know there are four Gospels in our New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We just sung that song. And every now and then, it's good church practicum to have your worship leader be totally out of breath. That's a good day. (laughs) We have four different Gospels in our Bible. The first three are what we call the synoptic Gospels. That word means that they see things the same way. The Gospel of John's a little bit different. He writes with a different style. He's intensely theological. The purpose of the Gospel of John is to convince you that Jesus is God. He is divine. He's not a superhero. He's not a really swell dude. He's not just a nice teacher. He is divine. That's John's purpose. But Matthew He's writing principally to a Jewish audience, trying to convince his readership that Jesus is the king of Israel. He is the promised one from the line of David. He is the one that God promised would always rule his covenant people. Now, the gospel of Luke is written by a Jewish guy to a primarily Jewish, I'm sorry, to a a Gentile guy, written primarily to a Greek and Gentile audience. What did Greeks care about 2,000 years ago? Man. Man was the pinnacle of creation, and so Luke writes his gospel to a primarily Greek and Gentile audience to tell them Jesus is the man. He is the commander of the armies, of the hosts of heaven. He is the man. But now Mark. Mark is a different gospel altogether. Mark is the shortest of all the gospels. Mark was probably the earliest of all of the gospels. Mark is sitting in Rome when he writes his gospel. Mark is writing his gospel in Rome to Romans who were very, very practical and pragmatic. So John's writing a theological treatise to say, Jesus is God. Matthew's saying, Jesus is the king. Luke's saying, Jesus is the man. But Mark is saying, Jesus is the suffering servant. Listen, Rome. Listen, Romans. Listen, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. I know you're beginning to wonder, how does my life actually work? Because the Roman Empire was beginning to break down. There was all sorts of problems that were beginning to divide and crack the empire. And there was a lot of things that were happening in the Christian churches. Christ, the Savior, well, he was killed brutally in Jerusalem. If this gospel of Mark's was written when we think it was, it's possible that Peter and Paul have also been killed. And so people are beginning to ask, how does life actually work? How does this actually make sense in a practical, pragmatic sense? This is Mark's gospel. Now, Mark's got some interesting history. 
All we know is that he was the child of a very wealthy woman in Jerusalem. We know nothing about his father. The Last Supper takes place in the upper room in Mark's house. At the end of Mark's gospel, we read about a young man who goes with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane, and the soldiers grab his cloak, and he gets stripped of it, and he runs away. That's Mark. In Acts chapter 12, Peter has been in prison, but he gets released, and Peter runs back to the house where they were meeting. That's Mark's house. Mark writes this gospel probably with all of the stories from Peter. Papias was an early church father. He was a direct disciple of the apostle John. And John told Papias, and Papias told his church, this gospel was written by Mark. You can trust it. We know that it was written from mostly Peter's stories because Peter's mentioned in this gospel more than in any other gospel and hardly ever in a favorable light. And I love that. Peter's giving the stories to Mark to write down. Peter was the biggest failure. And he doesn't have to pretend. The gospel does that to us, does that for us, does that through us. Mark writes this little gospel to tell people how to live a life that works. Now, later on, Mark will go on a first missionary journey with Paul. He gets discouraged, or we don't know exactly what happens, but he departs and takes off and sort of makes Paul mad. Paul and Barnabas get in a fight about this. Barnabas and Mark were cousins. Later on, Barnabas takes him on another missionary journey. But at the end of Paul's life, he is restored with Mark, and he wants Mark to come and visit him in Rome in prison because he is useful to Paul, uh, Paul says. So with all of that as a run-up, now turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Ashton's already read this for us, and I really appreciate that. So we're going to walk through this fairly briefly. Mark dives right in. Matthew starts with all this genealogy stuff. Here's Jesus' background. Here's how he's connected to the kingship of Israel. Luke starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of Jesus. John starts in eternity past with the very beginning of the word that was God and was with God. Mark is trying to show you this is a historical record of the veracity, the reality of Jesus because he's talking to a Roman audience. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Stop trying to explain it to me. Show me. He starts off this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You have to remember that the hearers or the readers of this first gospel account, most of the early Christians in that part of the world could not read. They would come to church like this, and this entire scroll would be read in its entirety because Mark wanted you to see it. It's very similar to what we see in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi, the first Western civilization context for the church, and they have an encounter with Lydia, a fashionista. They have an encounter with a demon-possessed slave girl, and then they meet a Roman soldier, the Roman prisoner, the, the jailer of the prison. And they don't try to explain things to him. They show him. That's how you show an indifferent man. You don't try to explain it to them. You show them. And this is what Mark's gospel is. It's more like an action movie. He doesn't have a whole lot of lengthy sermons like Matthew does. There's just all this, and then what happened was, and then what happened was, and then what happened was, and then what happened was. I love this gospel. Mark's writing it so that when you hear this whole 16-chapter narrative read, you don't fall asleep. I like this guy. 42 times in this gospel alone, he will say, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, because he's moving the plot forward. He wants you to be amazed that this Jesus is who the Bible says that he is. And so he says, the beginning of the gospel. Now, this term gospel was known in the Roman culture and civilization. They would use it all the time. If there was a new emperor that had been crowned, they would say, hear the gospel of Emperor Tiberius or Emperor whomever. There's a new land that's been conquered by our armies in Gaul. Hear the gospel of this announcement. There's a new structure that we just completed, the, the Flavian Amphitheater known as the Colosseum. Hear the gospel of its completion. 
And so Mark is saying, hey, Romans, I have a gospel for you. There's not been much good news lately, but I have a gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This name, Jesus, was very common in Palestine 2,000 years ago. It's named after one of the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew heroes, Joshua. And his name is who he is. Joshua means God saves. Joshua, Isaiah, Hosea, Yeshua, Jesus. It's all the same name. Jesus the Christ. You want a gospel? You want a piece of good news? You want an awesome announcement, Mark says? Let me tell you the good news about Jesus. He's the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. This is huge news. He is the son of God. This is an ancient way of saying that he himself is God. He's not a recent offspring of God. In antiquity, you would say you are the son of something. It means you are of the same essence. You're the same stuff. You are very God of very God. Let me give you some good news about this guy, Jesus the Christ, who is God. Then he's going to continue. Verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now, candidly, confessionally, I could camp out on these next two verses until Tuesday, but I want you to come back next week, so we're not going to do that. These next two verses pack all this Old Testament prophetic language together. He's going to say, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, but in reality, he's combining Malachi and Exodus and Isaiah, and he just sort of conflates it. And he goes, you know, like in Isaiah, because Isaiah was the majorest of all the major prophets, and so he sort of just referred to as the written prophets. They just call it Isaiah. He's going to start with Malachi, and then he goes into Isaiah and some of Exodus 23. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark is saying, hey, you Romans, you might know how this goes. When an emperor comes to visit, you have to prepare his way. He's referring to Isaiah chapter 40 and Isaiah chapter 42. Malachi 3, Malachi 4, Exodus 23. All four gospels mention Isaiah 40 all of them, to say, hey, Yahweh himself is coming to Jerusalem. Yahweh, not just some angel, not just some hero, Yahweh himself is coming to Jerusalem. And Mark is saying, you guys, you guys, this is it. The thing that we were told 700 years ago in Malachi and Isaiah, it's happened. As is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I will send a messenger. Now, does God really have to send a messenger? He doesn't really have to, but he said that he would, and so now he has to. God says, I will send a forerunner. I will send someone who will announce the coming of the Christ. And so God is bound by his own word. And so he says, I will send this. And Mark says, I know this guy. I met this guy. I've seen this guy. I heard this guy. Let me tell you about him. He was foretold from centuries earlier. And so verse four, we're introduced to John. John, not the apostle John, John the baptizer. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This verse is packed. You have to understand, we sort of get baptism in the 21st century as, as people of the church or in Western civilization. Baptism in those days was reserved exclusively for one group of people. In all the Old Testament, you only see one person ever get baptized, ever it was a Syrian dude who was a general of their army who had leprosy. And he comes and he says, hey, I hear you have a God who can actually heal leprosy. I need some help. And the prophet Elisha says, oh, well, you got to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. He goes, that gross, disgusting river? No, we've got nicer rivers in Syria. No, thank you. Elisha says, well, good luck with that whole leprosy thing as things start falling off. Call me. One of, the, one of Naaman's 
servant says, hey, listen, if he would have asked you to do something impossible, you would have done it. He's asked you to do an easy thing. And so Naaman says, fine. And so Naaman goes and he's baptized in the Jordan. This death sentence Gentile gets baptized. And now we are told that John goes out to the wilderness. He's not in Judea. I mean, he's not in Jerusalem because that place was unclean. People were coming out to him. These Jewish people who believed that they were in the covenant community of God because of their Jewishness are realizing it's not true. Just because of where and when they were born and to, to whom they were born, they're not actually in. And so they're coming out to John in droves and they are submitting to this indignity of being immersed in the dirty Jordan River just like Naaman because they had a longing. They said, we've got problems in this world, but what we need is what you're proclaiming. We need the gospel. And so John is proclaiming this baptism of repentance. Turn away, rethink your thinking. You used to think that because you were Jewish, you were in the covenant community. Rethink your thinking and have your behavior changed accordingly for the forgiveness of sin so that your sin will be paid for, your debt removed. This is what John was proclaiming and people were coming in droves. Well, what about the sacrifices in the temple? Weren't those things addressing people's sin? No, it wasn't sincere and they knew it. They had a void and a longing. The Old Testament concludes with devastation, destruction, and the silence of God. But wait for the messenger. And Mark says, you guys, you guys, it's him. He has come, and he's proclaiming the gospel, and I want to write this down for you. Verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, admitting, saying the same words as God, that we cannot wash ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. This is the first time you see in Jewish tradition, someone else immerses you. And there's a whole lot of different washing rites and all kinds of things that you would do in Judaism. You would dip yourself, you would wash this, you'd, but you did it all yourself as you tried to achieve acceptance and appeasement. But now John has to do it for you. Something has to come outside of you so that you can be in. Verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This is the original, like, you know, paleo diet thing. You just eat locusts and honey and just watch the pounds fall away. No, 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 no. This is a very specific thing. John is an Old Testament prophet. I know that these gospels appear in our New Testament, but really and truly, these four gospel accounts read like Old Testament narratives. John is the final Old Testament prophet. And he's not just any Old Testament prophet. He is a prophet in the line of Elijah. Now, when you think of the law, you think Moses. When you think of the prophets, you think Elijah. He's sort of the representative. He was the greatest of the prophets. He didn't write anything down that we have in our Bible, but he's referenced as the symbol, the personification of the prophets. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, two guys appear to him, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And we're told in Malachi 3, when the Messiah comes, I will send Elijah to you. And the people didn't understand. They're like, Elijah, he's literally coming back in the flesh? Because they didn't quite understand. I mean, there was that whole chariot of fire thing. Is he going to come back in a chariot of fire? What's that all mean? And Jesus will explain later, no, no, no. I sent you Elijah in the form of John the Baptist. He wasn't reincarnated. It's the, the idea, the form and the model and the mode of Elijah. And so Mark tells us how we can know this. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt. Very specific. Nobody else ever gets described by what they wear in the Bible. He was wearing a little waistcoat and he had four gold buttons. Nobody gets that treatment. But here, a camel hair coat and a leather belt. Why? Because that is exactly how Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1.8. 
They said, who was this guy? Well, this guy, he had a camel hair coat and leather belt and he ate locusts and honey. Oh, that was Elijah. And so Mark is saying, this guy, John, this is what he wore. He is the coming of Elijah who proclaims the Messiah. You guys, it's happening. It's come. Lo- locusts, not something you usually want to find for your Sunday afternoon lunch. Locust was one of the only clean animals in Leviticus. You could eat locust and it was clean. And wild honey, it wouldn't defile you ceremonially. So John is out in the Old Testament style of a prophet. And he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John saying, this is my finger pointing at the sun. I am merely the finger pointing at the sun. I'm not the sun. Someone else is coming after me. I'm not even fit to untie his sandals. Now, what's going on there? That is a, uh, a, it's a euphemism of the greatness of the one that will come after John. John kept saying, I have to diminish. Christ has to increase. It's not about me. It's not about my uh, exemplary model. It's about Jesus. I have to fade away and Christ is going to come and he's enormous. I can't even untie his shoes. He's divine. In those days, a servant, the one thing you could not force your slave or your servant to do was to take your shoes off because that might make you ceremonially unclean because if you touch someone's shoes and they've been walking where there was livestock, there might be some stuff on their shoes. You would touch that, you'd be unclean. No master could command you to break the law of God and so you couldn't tell your servants to take off your shoes. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that if he wanted me to because he is so much greater, he is so much grander. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Look, I'm giving you a symbol of this death, burial, and resurrection, but he's going to actually bring a member of the Godhead himself, and he will transform you. I'm showing you the repentance. He's going to come and actually transform your very heart, your very life. He's going to demonstrate the life that actually works. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, this is the earliest of the gospel accounts, and so it's very brief. We're pretty sure that Matthew and Luke borrow from Mark's gospel. We get a lot more information about Jesus' baptism in the gospel of Luke and in the gospel of Matthew. Mark is very brief here. He tells us something fascinating. is that Jesus comes from Galilee. Now, you have to remember, there's a bit of of a sense in which Mark is not writing to scholars. Mark's not writing to people who are seminary trained or who've gone to Bible college. He's trying to give people an action movie so that they will get this. All the people from Jerusalem were going out into the wilderness. That means they went due east towards the Dead Sea. And that's where they were meeting John and they were getting baptized. Jesus, however, strangely, Mark tells us, he comes from Galilee, that is due north. It's a couple days journey and Jesus makes his way from Galilee in the north to come down. A couple weeks ago, Nathan Atkinson took us through Isaiah chapter 9 where he said that the Galilee is typically the land of the Gentiles. It's out there. It's up there. It's what's going on up there. But it's foretold in Isaiah that the Messiah will come out of Galilee. And so Mark tells us this Jesus, he comes out of Galilee and he comes south. Now remember, the land of Palestine, of ancient Israel, is itself a lesson It is a word picture for what we're going to see in this narrative. In the northernmost parts of Israel, you have Mount Hermon or Mount Hermon where the snows fall and then finally they melt and the waters rush down the mountain and they feed these springs that ultimately becomes the Jordan River. And it's God's provision, his abundance, his blessing. One of the first places that these waters of blessing flow through is a little village called Adam or Adam. 
And immediately in the village of Adam, or Adam, you start to see corruption and filth and dirt and pollution. And it just gets worse and worse as these Jordan in Hebrew, the, the descending waters or the waters of judgment, as they move further south, further south, they get more polluted. And if you go to Israel today and you look at the Jordan, there are like bloated goat carcasses and spare tires in there. It's disgusting. It's like dengue fever and West Nile and every other pathogen existing is all in that water. It's foul. And it just keeps getting worse until finally it goes into the Dead Sea where there is no life. There's nothing alive in the Dead Sea. They call it the Salt Sea. Nothing will live there. And Jesus comes from the north as he's walking next to the Jordan, this provision of God that has become polluted by man's sin. And it, all the text tells us is that Jesus is baptized by John. Now, Luke and Matthew tell us that John protests and says, whoa, whoa, whoa Jesus, you got this backwards. You should be baptizing me. Jesus says, no, no, no. I am identifying with my people. You have to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus, it's a picture of his life, of his ministry, and of his death. The pure and sinless and spotless one will be immersed in these polluted waters, all of the, the filth and all of the sin and all of the ick of humanity that they would come to wash themselves, he's going to have wash all over him. And in fact, he will become it. He will be buried, and yet he will emerge alive. Let's watch the text some more. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, see, this is one of those, and immediately, and immediately, he just moves the plot along as fast as he can. And immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open. The other gospel writers say, and the heavens opened. John's, or Mark says, no, no, dude, check this out. And immediately, the heavens like blew open because he wants to tell you something. This is unbelievable. The creator of the cosmos is telling you, I'm going to become the sin of the people. I'm going to die, but I will rise again. And heaven just can't take it. It's the same words that were told in the temple after the resurrection of Jesus, that the temple curtain was torn open from the top to the bottom. God did it. And so heaven just tears open, and there's this gaping gash between physical and spiritual reality. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The Spirit is not a dove. The Spirit descends like a dove, gently, softly. But there's also a connection back to creation. In those days, in the beginning, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. This is a new creation that Jesus is inaugurating with his baptism in these waters like a dove. And a voice from came from heaven saying, so now we've got the three members of the Trinity. We've got Jesus. We've got the Spirit descending like a dove on Jesus. And then God the Father himself speaks. But there's so much going on here. In every other occasion, when the Holy Spirit of God comes on a human being, in every single one, beginning with a guy named Bezalel way back in Exodus, in every single occasion when the Holy Spirit comes on a person, that person is changed radically. They prophesy, their behavior or their gifts and talents are amplified drastically. The Spirit changes them. But when the Spirit comes on Jesus, this is instructive. There is no change whatsoever because he's never not been with the Spirit. The Spirit's never not been with him. It is an affirmation and a confirmation. This man is divine. There is no change to him. Then God the Father speaks, you are my beloved son, with you, I am well pleased. And right there, God the Father quotes three passages of Scripture. 
Again, why we walk through Scripture like we do, if it's good enough for God the Father himself to cite Psalm 2, Genesis 22, and Isaiah 42, then we're going to do it as well. God quotes these three central Old Testament Hebrew passages to say, it's you, it's you, I love you, I am proud of you. Everybody, follow him, obey him, listen to what he says, love him, because I call him the beloved. Again, from Psalm 2, Genesis 22, and Isaiah 42. Well, this affirmation of the Trinity doesn't last a real long time because we're told in verse 12, the Spirit, and immediately the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Now, there's a theme in Mark's gospel. Over and over again, we're going to see the wilderness. I like this word wilderness because it starts with wild. We think wilderness in North America. We think forests. We think Yosemite. No, no, no. Wilderness is like the surface of Mars. If you go towards the Dead Sea, there's no life. And the wilderness is where God woos his people. Again and again and again. We see it in Exodus. We see it in all the prophetic writings. The wilderness is where God says, this is where I show you how much I love you. When everything else that you rely on, all of your other crutches, all of your other sources of life and joy and well-being, they're all removed from you. I am all that you have. And that's where God leads us. And so the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted. We've got this affirmation where God says, you're the guy. You are my son. I'm pleased with you. But now Mark wants these Roman pragmatic readers to understand, is he morally competent to be our savior, to be our Lord, to be our king? He's got the divine stamp of approval, but is he really the goodest of them all? The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days just like we see all the nation of Israel. Jesus is identified with his own people, Israel, in baptism. He's identifying with his people, Israel, out in the wilderness. He's being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. What a strange little thing to add. Mark is telling us something. Yes, it was rugged and it was wilderness and it was wild. But he's also telling us this is the second Adam, the last Adam, who in his season of temptation, was surrounded by wild animals and didn't do so good. But there's a new creation that has dawned. This last Adam is with the wild animals, and he was not afraid, and neither were they. And the angels were ministering to him. Their way of reminding Jesus that God was with him, he was not alone, it would not be easy, but that he was not alone. What is Mark trying to tell us with this gospel? You guys, the greatest longings of the human heart, the greatest needs of a human life, of a community, of a country, has come in Christ. We need Jesus. So let me see if I can apply this very quickly, just three quick points of application or implication. Number one goes like this. Jesus works. Now let me quickly refine a nuance that lest you think I mean Jesus has a job. Jesus works does not mean that life will be easy and that you'll have every imaginable happiness. In fact, you probably won't. And unless he comes back very soon, as we used to say in church, should he tarry, you're probably going to die. Perhaps even after a season of suffering. And I'm very sorry. That's not what Jesus came to do. No, I'm saying that the life of Jesus that he offers is the only life that really works, that really functions it's a life that matters, that means something, that is actually capable of experiencing joy and being a joy to other people. Every other avenue of life offered by this world, every single one leads to death, separation, 
loneliness, frustration, and implosion, and therefore futility and anger. You begin to just feel like you're on the hamster wheel of pointlessness, and your life takes on this vapid nonsense, and you don't quite know what to do with your life. Jesus works. A life that trusts that Jesus works increasingly understands that Jesus is the suffering servant foretold in the book of Isaiah, who understands the trial of this life better than any of us ever could. And he has taken it into himself. He identifies with us and he's defeated it. It's really broken. It's really beaten. I'm asking you to dare to trust that this is actually true. What if the life that you needed most wasn't actually up to you to accomplish, but it was offered for free? And it is. And this is why Mark says it is such good news. It's a great story. It's an awesome announcement. The one that we need most has come and he's good. And he loves us. And he's offering not just the gospel of how to go to heaven one day when you die. That's not good enough news. He's offering the gospel of how to live victoriously, fulfilled and enjoy here and now until such time as you meet him face to face. And then it's just eternally better forever and ever. Second point goes like this. Identify with Jesus. Identify with Jesus. Identity is simply the thing that is always true about you. So what is your identity? Really, what is the thing that is always true about you? Maybe it's the stuff that you're capable of. You're an athlete. Maybe you're smart. Maybe you're attractive. So far, I'm 0 for 3, just so you know. Maybe you got a winning personality, and you think that that's you. And if you lost that, well, then your personality, hmm, your personality would collapse. But the gospel of Jesus Christ comes along and shows us that God became human and that he actually identifies with us. He takes on every form of suffering and woundedness and loneliness and sorrow and pain. He's been through it all and he can totally relate to our situation and he's right there in the middle of it with us. And the invitation to us as hearers of the gospel is to make that truth the thing that is always true about us. It's Jesus. We need Jesus. Let me put it another way. We need Jesus. Let me help again. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. This is the gospel. When I'm struggling in my marriage, just hypothetically imagine in your, I know it's hard to, it, when some of you are struggling in your marriage, let's just say, we now have the invitation to be reminded that I am loved and accepted by God in Christ. I am called the beloved, just like Jesus, and I don't have to get my way with my wife. I am free to lovingly lose. Hmm. When I'm struggling in my day-to-day -day career, trying to work to achieve some level of acceptance, approval, notoriety, I now have the invitation to be reminded that I am loved and accepted by God in Christ. I don't have to strive for meaning. It's been granted to me utterly. When you think of yourself, and you'd probably be horrified and shocked to be aware of just how much you and I think about ourselves every single day. What do you think about yourself? Do you think of yourself as, gosh, I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I have those thoughts. I can't believe I'm the kind of person that, I can't believe, ah, I can't believe that. Or do you think, I am in Christ. I'm a new creation, fully loved, completely accepted. I lack for nothing. Identify with Jesus. The most important thing about you is that he identifies with you, or at least he's waiting to. Third point. This might be a little strange to you, but go with me on this. 
It goes like this. Let yourself love Jesus. Let yourself love Jesus. There's been a lot of talk in Christianity and in Christian circles over the last couple centuries about discipleship and the necessity of following Jesus. And let me just say, of course, I agree with that. I want you to follow Jesus. Yes, you and I should follow Jesus. But if that's your primary focus and your primary goal, you're never gonna actually have any real change or movement toward the life God has for you. Look at the disciples in Mark's gospel and you'll see what I mean. Mark's gospel details a whole bunch of dudes who are trying to follow Jesus but get it wrong 100% of the time. They see Jesus, they're walking with him. They get it, they understand, and they keep face planting forward. The gospel of Mark is not trying to tell you just do what he does and try harder to be better. You will, like Peter, wind up face planting and being called Satan. That's a bad day. No, no, no. It's about so much more than that. These guys follow Jesus and they fail again and again and again. But then something incredible happens. Jesus dies. He's crucified. He's buried and he's raised again. And these guys just love Jesus. It changes everything. That's the book of Acts. And they give him their lives. In fact, the gospel writer Mark goes to Alexandria, Egypt to preach the gospel and they will not have it. They drag him to pieces in Alexandria in front of their false gods. But Mark willingly went to that life. There's some flicker in your heart and your soul that the Holy Spirit even now is trying to tenderize so that your life actually takes on a different tone, a different motivation. Most of us live our lives by default out of fear. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Most of us by default live our lives and our primary motivation is fear. The reason we get out of bed in the morning is because we're fear of losing out. We're fear of missing out. We're fear, we have a fear of being found out to be the fraud that we know we actually are. And so our life takes on this constricting, I've got to, I've got to, I have to, I have to. And we're living, living our lives out of fear. But Mark is writing so that we will stop living out of fear and start living out of joy and freedom. Christ has come. I no longer have to strive for acceptance or worth or meaning or significance or value. He has done it. We're invited to love this guy who is God. Just look at how he was. Look what he said. Look what he was like. Look how he engaged with people. Look how he loved people. The things that he says, I go, man, I wish I was more like that. And he's trying to make me that way. But he's doing it. Man, the, the way he interacts and, and, and has compassion for people, I wish I was more like that. And Jesus says, I do too. And I am making you like that. Trust me. Love me. So I want to say again, we need Jesus. The more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. So we get to spend these next several weeks and months together looking at the life of Jesus, watching the movie, if you will, that Mark is the cinematographer over. We get to look at the object of our faith more and more and more. I'm not inviting you to try harder or to be more religious. I'm inviting you to really consider Jesus and to trust that he is who the Bible says he is. What if it was true? What if it was really true that there really is this Jesus who is a king that cares, a champion who is willing to die in our place, and a big brother who is proud? It's quite a gospel indeed. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to pause from all the other distractions of life, the things that are vying for our attention and our affection. We pray that you would continue to use your word to stir up 
a focus on Jesus. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who's heard a lot about you, who has some superstitious notions about you, would you, by your Spirit, move irresistibly and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus? Would you do for them what you've done for us, that they would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he has come, and he offers life abundant, and he will come again. For the rest of us, Father, who perhaps are dealing with all of the, the weeds of life that have grown up around our souls, would you use this truth in this text to remind us of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can have joy and joy to the fullest, no matter what circumstances we might be encountering. We pray for this body of believers, this community in which we live, Father, that the joy of the gospel would sound forth and not return void. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.